0: A number of years ago, a middle-aged couple at our church was going through some challenging transitions, including losing their apartment. So our friends, Dave and Lois, generously allowed Tim and Gail, not their real names, to live temporarily at their lake cabin just north of Champaign while they were on sabbatical in Australia. The cabin was heated with a wood stove, and one late winter evening, Tim stoked up the firebox, and then he and Gail retired to bed. In the middle of the night, they were startled awake by the blaring smoke alarm, uh, only to find that their entire cabin was engulfed in smoke. Uh, fortunately, they were able to crawl along the floor to find the outside door. Regrettably, as soon as they opened the door, the cabin burst into flame with a shot of oxygen, and it, and it rapidly burned to the ground. The next day, Tim asked me what he should do. And I said, well, you've got to make the call to Dave and Lois. Now, mind you, Dave and Lois are on sabbatical on the other side of the world. But Tim did summon the courage to call Dave and Lois with a good news, bad news phone call. Dave, the good news is that Gail and I are fine. <laughs> the bad news is the cabin is a total loss. Now, how would you like to get that phone call? Now, Dave and Lois were, were gracious and very grateful that uh, God had spared Tim and Gail's lives, and they actually got to build a much nicer cabin. Today, we're looking at an Old Testament story about three young men who survived a furnace fire as well. And we are concluding this series of sermons that we've titled, Our God is Too Small. Our fundamental conviction has been all along that we often think of God as too weak or too distant or too uninterested or too unable or perhaps too unwilling to do anything. And consequently, one of the main things of which we need to be reminded when we gather for worship at the first day of the week is just how big God really is and how much he loves us as his sons and daughters. So over these last six weeks, in the stories of the lives of some Old Testament saints, we've been encouraged to see and experience God in larger ways. In the story of Jacob, we saw that God is always good. In the story of Joseph, we we have seen that God is always present. In the story of David, we've seen that God is able, able to administer his love and his power in just the right amounts at just the right times. Then we saw in the story of Gideon that God is powerful. And last week in the story of Job, we saw that God is trustworthy. Today, in the story of the three Hebrews, we're going to discover that God is faithful. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful. We're grateful for a brand new day at the start of a brand new week. And even with a threat of, of difficult weather, our, our hearts just cry, uh, we love you. We, we are grateful, God, for the life you give us. And this day of rest and worship. We, we pray the prayer you taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done in our lives right here on the earth as it's done in heaven. And Lord, we pray not just for all of our family here in the auditorium, but right next door in kids' church and in the nursery where little ones are learning to love and serve and worship the real deal. Bless them, God. Anoint and empower their, their instructors and their small group leaders and their worship leaders too. Lord, uh, would you put power on your word to our life today? It's our prayer in your name. Amen. So today's story is found in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel is the last of the five books that are referred to as the major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, then Daniel. And then there are 12 minor prophets. In the year 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon captured Jerusalem. His chief of staff was ordered to bring back to Babylon the finest young men from Judah's royal noble families. Here were the instructions to Asphanaz, the chief of staff. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. Make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. And so Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were among the first group of deportees back to Babylon. Now, as far as we know, all four men then subsequently lived in Babylon the entire 70 years uh, that Jerusalem was in captivity. Upon arrival, the four were enrolled in a three-year training program in order to be equipped for service in the royal palace, and each was renamed with a Babylonian name that was associated with one of the many gods of Babylon, even though the men had already determined in their hearts not to defile themselves with the king's food and wine. Daniel was renamed Belteshazzar, Hananiah was renamed Shadrach, Mishael was renamed Meshach, and Azariah was named Abednego. I grew up thinking it was Abednego. It's not. It's Abednego. Now, at the end of the training period, here's what we read or discover about them in Daniel 1, verses 18 to 20. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service, and whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom." So the Babylonians recognized that the four Jewish boys were extraordinarily gifted leaders, presumably late teenagers at this time. And these four guys had a meteoric rise to fame, like four other young guys, you see. After they successfully interpreted a king's dream in Daniel 2, we discover that at the end of chapter 2, that the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel rule over the whole province of Babylon as well as over his wise men. And at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon while Daniel remained in the king's service in his court. Now, it's helpful to understand that Babylon, the scene of our story and Daniel and the three Hebrews' life and ministry, was the wonder city of the entire world at the at, at at this time. It's it's now a heap of ruins in the middle of Iraq, modern day Iraq. It was the most beautiful and powerful and wickedly luxurious city in the known world. Nebuchadnezzar was its brilliant mastermind and architect and builder for a period of about 45 years. His palace, where Daniel would have lived, was one of the most magnificent buildings ever constructed on the earth. Nebuchadnezzar's hanging gardens were considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. City walls were 300 feet high, 80 feet wide, They had 250 towers. There were 180 gates of brass. There were a series of canals and bridges and piers and drawbridges through the city because the the river Euphrates ran right through the middle of Babylon. In its day, Babylon was not only the premier city of the pre-Christian era. It ruled the most powerful empire that the world had ever seen. This was home or the four Hebrew men. They were employed by the secular, godless government and held positions of high-ranking influence. And so, just remember, God has his people in all kinds of places. Be very slow to judge what kind of jobs you think a Christ follower should or ought to have. God places his people wherever he wants them. And it's not up to us to assess the fitness or suitability of that job for a Christian. That's God's job. That's the lesson from Daniel and the four Hebrew men. Now, they were unswerving in their love and devotion to God, but they were loyal to their idolatrous king. Because of this unique combination, the four were trusted with the affairs of the entire empire. Our story today unfolds in Daniel 3. Now, according to the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, the events took place in the 18th year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, making the four Hebrew young men, perhaps in their late 20s or early 30s. Nebuchadnezzar had built a gold statue, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. It's almost as tall as a central bank building downtown Peoria, for sake of reference. Now, we're not told what the statue was. It's not likely a representation of himself, as is often reported, because the proportions of the human body wouldn't work well, 90 feet tall, 90 wide. He'd be really tall and skinny. It was more likely um, some kind of religious or pagan symbol, perhaps like an obelisk. Then he invited, he, King Nebuchadnezzar, invited all the government officials to this dedication ceremony with the specific proviso that when his orchestra began to play and strike up the anthem, whatever it was, everyone was to bow down or risk being thrown into a blazing furnace. No doubt this was Nebuchadnezzar's attempt to consolidate his power and to ensure that everyone in the kingdom saw him and his gods as the ultimate authority. So now, the three Hebrew men, we have no indication that Daniel was with them at the time, had a challenging decision to make. No doubt they clearly understood the first and second of God's Ten Commandments. The first, you must not have any other God before me, The second, you must not make yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in heaven or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God and will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. The first of the two Ten Commandments. It's our general presupposition, isn't it, that God's children should always obey God's commands. Point and simple. And we might think, in their case, that obedience to God's first two commands would be simple and clear, right? But we all know that God's Word doesn't always provide for such simple and compelling marching orders. That is, sometimes it feels a little more complicated. Let me illustrate. Here they are, among the world's most important and powerful dignitaries in the most powerful empire known in history. They are VIPs on the world stage, and maybe they could have said, you know, hey, if we get ourselves killed, who else in the government is going to look after all the Jews that are in exile in Babylon? What good to God are we if we're dead? Or they could have said, you know, this is a foreign land, and they do things differently here than we did back home in Israel, and so... We really have to figure out how to adapt for effective ministry into our culture. Or they could have said, hey, we'll fall down. We won't actually worship the idol in our hearts. We'll just look like we're worshiping the idol, and God will know our hearts. Or they could have said, hey, we'll worship the idol just one time, and then we'll ask for forgiveness. After all, God's people sin and then ask for forgiveness all the time. Or they could have said, well, God gave us these jobs of significance and power and influence, and certainly God wouldn't want us to jeopardize our positions of calling. Or they could have said, our ancestors set up idols in God's temple, and this isn't anywhere near like that, so no doubt he will excuse us. Can't you see? It's a challenging moral dilemma, isn't it? It isn't quite so simple as we might uh, be predisposed to imagine. They faced a challenging moral dilemma, and it is true that positions of power and influence seem to be more particularly vulnerable to those dilemmas. What kind of internal dialogues have we had when it comes to obeying God with the degree of light or understanding that we have? What does it mean to really not have any other gods before God? And while today we don't have idols of wood or stone or gold, as it were, what are the idols that in in our culture compel us to worship today? Where have we been tempted to shave our present practices of loving God and loving others and, and extending his kingdom? for the purposes of, you know, blending in or not suffering consequences. Hello. Obedience can be complicated, if not challenging. The story continues. So the music began. but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down. And almost immediately, their refusal to obey the king's orders was reported to Nebuchadnezzar who demanded to see them at once. And we see his response in Daniel 3. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I've set up? I'll give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I've made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace and then what God will be able to rescue you from my power. Well, I I have to believe that King Nebuchadnezzar was sincerely hoping that the report that he'd heard was not true, Uh, that he wanted to see them face-to-face rather than having them immediately uh, killed is some kind of evidence of his unique relationship with him. And to lose those three talented, gifted statesmen would have been tragic. On the other hand, to lose his grip on the empire by allowing such insurrection, for his pagan gods to be disrespected in this act of overt rejection, and and for his, his, Nebuchadnezzar's pride to be tarnished in such a blatant manner would have been fatal. And so he gave them one more chance. He claimed to have control of the outcome of their destiny. It's as if he were saying, I control your destiny. They responded, chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we'll never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. It's hard for us to imagine, but within the purview of the fiery furnace, the smoke and flames billowing, in front there of the dignitaries from all over the world on that stage, hearing the voice of, of Nebuchadnezzar Blair loudly, the king whom they loved and were loyal to serve, and the music now playing in the background, may have all been overwhelming evidences that their God was too small. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saw their God as big and faithful. Now we have wilted and collapsed under far less challenging circumstances, haven't we? But their conviction and their decision in this moment inspires us yet today. There's perhaps no confession in the Old Testament that affirms God's faithfulness and people's trust in his faithfulness as simply and as powerfully as the confession of the three Hebrew men. They didn't know the end of the story like you and I know it today. They didn't have the end of chapter 3 to read yet. It was yet to be written. But So they didn't know the end of the story, but they knew and trusted God who knew the end of the story. They regarded themselves in many ways as good as dead, but that God was faithful, and they were willing in that moment to trust and obey, trust and obey. They placed their destiny in the hands of the living God, not King Nebuchadnezzar, who claimed to control their destiny. As a result of their refusal, we continue reading in chapter 3 what happened, verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual, and then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and throw them into the blazing furnace. And so they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. And because the king in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. Nebuchadnezzar was so enraged that the prescribed punishment of death by torture was not sufficient. He had to make it seven times worse by making the furnace seven times hotter. You see, he was not accustomed to people telling him no. And and probably a demonic anger rose up inside of him. The three men, bound in their clothes, because the clothes would catch fire much faster, and threw them into the furnace with heat so intense that it killed the strongest executioners in the entire empire. And then to everyone's sudden surprise, Nebuchadnezzar and his advisors saw not three, but four men standing, walking, unbound, unharmed in the fire. And the text reads that the fourth appeared like the son of the gods, whatever that must have looked like to them. And then we read, as the story continues, Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire, and then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed, And their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Wow. That is one powerful story of God's deliverance, isn't it? I mean, it's so miraculous that today, in hindsight, we can almost hardly believe it. It almost sounds like a fairy tale. Now, perhaps you've actually, though, experienced a, a dramatic deliverance like this, or or you know of someone who has, or maybe you've read about them in Guidepost magazine or, or some other piece of literature, you know, where people today still experience a supernatural, powerful deliverance, whether it's from a, you know, a vehicle accident or a burning house or being lost in the woods and, and finding deliverance. Uh, maybe maybe you know of somebody that that's experienced something like that. A number of years ago, my brother Tim and his two daughters were swimming in the ocean off, uh, off of the, the beach uh, in San Diego where they own a home. And uh, they'd been swimming for about a half an hour, and Tim and his two daughters noticed that the, the farther that they swam uh, uh, towards the shore, the farther out in the ocean they actually were becoming. And after about 45 minutes of swimming they were now several hundred yards from the shore realizing that as their energy is depleting and and the, uh they're trying to get to shore the farther they out uh, they they are away from the shore and they're now beginning to panic as they're nearing exhaustion bobbing underneath the water and my brother Tim said at that moment 15 yards to his right was a man who was like standing in the water waist deep but they were in in water that was probably about 15 or 20 feet deep. And so something didn't quite register, because you can't be waste out of the water. And he said the the man laughed at him. And my brother, in a moment of panic, said, no, we're drowning, serious. He said the man chuckled and said, sometimes it helps if you swim a parallel to the shore. And then he said at that moment, the man did a backflip and disappeared. And at that moment, my brother realized that they were caught in a riptide and that it's useless to fight a riptide. So what you do in a riptide is you, you swim parallel to the shore to get out of the riptide. And within about 10 or 15 feet, they were out. And immediately, they, they could swim exhausted to the shore. And it wasn't until they'd had several hours to recover that they realized that God had sent an angel to supernaturally deliver them from he and his two daughters drowning on the shore that day. Perhaps you know of people who have experienced a powerful, dramatic story. They still occur, and they are still as almost unbelievable to us today as they are in the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God is able, and even if he doesn't, he is faithful. Now, many of us today would, would report that we're in the fire. Now, perhaps not a literal furnace, but a life-threatening or a real-life threatening, the real life that Jesus said he came to give, a real-life threatening, nevertheless. We're in a fire where the smoke is choking out your love, your joy, your peace, your contentment, and it's choked out with worry, and fear, and anxiety, or sickness and disease, or disappointment, or stress, or conflict, or relational trouble, or whatever. And we all face many trials, many fiery trials of many kinds, because to be human is to face trial. There is no other way to cut it in the kingdom. To be human is to have uh, uh, trials. There is no such thing as a life in the kingdom without trials. We face trials of many kinds. Maybe your fire is that you're tempted to compromise your love for God, your love for others, or or you're tempted to sin, or to worship some cultural idol, or to not do the good things you know you're supposed to do. Maybe for you, you're in the fire because you've made mistakes, and you now suffer because of the poor judgment or the consequences that have followed. Maybe you're in the fire because of other people's decisions. You feel like it's not fair because you're suffering because of the choices of other people, a boss or a relative or an ex-spouse or an employer or employee. Maybe you're in the fire because we live in a broken, fallen world that has evil consequences. That just is. Maybe you're on another kind of fire. Through no fault of your own. What does God being faithful to us as his children in the fire look like today? Well, if you have, if you're following along in your Bible, your Bible app, open to Hebrews 11. Now this is the chapter in the Bible that is often referred to as the hallmark of faith. Here comes the rain. We can just acknowledge that because everybody's distracted anyway. It's amazing what you see from up here. It really is. And, you know, and if you even nod off, you know, I'm not going to, like, look at you because I know that, you know, this is the one hour a week where it's like, ah, I can rest. Okay? So the only thing that really bothers me is if you start cutting your fingernails. You know, just don't go there. Don't do that because that really will bother me. Clip, clip, clip. I may be tempted just to stand here and look at you if you're cutting the nail. So if that ever happens, you'll you'll know. But, you know, nodding off because you find the environment of God's presence so peaceful, not a problem at all. Because I know you're going to go back and listen to the podcast anyway. So, you know, it's not a problem. Now, Hebrews, we're, we're in Hebrews 11. I, I did not lose my place, and I know you didn't either. This is the chapter of the Bible that we call the hallmark of faith, and it recounts in very brief form uh, the, the life of some of the Old Testament saints, saints like Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and how they trusted God as faithful. To trust is to have faith. Same word in the original language. And as it's recounting the stories, about halfway through the chapter, we read this. How much more, verse 32, do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. Now, if we stopped reading right there, we might think that God's faithfulness today would always result in such kinds of miraculous deliverances, sovereign interventions, overwhelming victory. But we can't stop there. We have to keep reading. Others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at, and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half, and others were killed with a sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world. Wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground, all these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. Yet none of them received all that God had promised. All were faithful. All were counted as having faith. That God is faithful doesn't mean there will be no fires or that we will supernaturally be delivered from all of them. He may supernaturally deliver us. And when he does... Let's have a shouting fest. Praise God for those moments of supernatural, sovereign intervention where we are delivered from the fire. But he may not, and our circumstances do not diminish his faithfulness. God will deliver us, but if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow. His faithfulness is rooted in his character, his character which is so big His faithfulness is not rooted in our circumstances, our fiery trial. So there may be times we have to go through the fire, not around the fire, or be delivered out of the fire. In the end, we will all be delivered. There's a day coming when this present evil world will cease. The overlapping of two kingdoms uh, is no longer there. Uh, The new heaven and the new earth are formed, And as John tells us, he saw a new heaven and a new earth. The old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He'll wipe away every tear from their eye. There'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. There's coming a day when there will be no fiery trials anymore. We'll live in constant victory in the presence of the living God who loves us. Now, in the trials of our life, we are encouraged by the writer to Hebrews who completes his observations of the, of the saints in 11 by saying this in chapter 12. Therefore, he said, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, the crowd is the saints listed in chapter 11, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Each one of us has a different race. Run, run it with endurance. And we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Keep your eyes on Jesus. The Jesus that we have discovered is good, that is present, that is powerful, that is able to administer his love and his mercy and his power in just the right doses, at just the right time. Jesus who is trustworthy. And now today we're discovering a Jesus who is faithful. Put your eyes on that. Keep your eyes on Jesus. As you're running your race, the kind of race that in some ways looks like Hebrews 11, the first paragraph, and Hebrews 11, the second paragraph. Keep your eyes on him. Now, friends, if you're a follower of Jesus today, assuming uh, that you are, we fully understand that maybe some of you wouldn't identify yourself that way yet, and that's totally fine. Those of you who are followers of Jesus know that Jesus said, I tell you the truth. That those who listen to me and believe in my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life, and they'll never be condemned for their sins. They've already passed from death into life. John five, twenty-four. And Jesus told Martha at the at the ceremony of the the funeral ceremony of her of, of her brother Lazarus, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And so here's the point. You already have, as a follower of Christ, eternal life. As we've learned, more literally, the life of the age to come. It already belongs to you. And the fire of trial cannot touch you. When you completely trust your destiny to Jesus, as the three Hebrews did, instead of to some other set of influences or powers or controls or people, when you fully trust your future, and your destiny to Jesus, you will find a level of freedom that you know nothing else about. You're free. You are free. Nothing can touch you. Uh, You're free from fear. You're free from worry. You're free free from anxiety. Free free from threats. You're free to say no. You are free to say yes to Jesus. You are free. You're totally free. Nothing can touch you. Jesus is faithful Whether you are supernaturally delivered right now from your fiery furnace or the fiery furnace consumes you and you cross over to life after death. In either case, Jesus is faithful. He is good. He is present. He is powerful. He is able. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. God is able to save. And if he doesn't, we're still not going to bend. We're not going to bow. We're not going to burn. We will be delivered now or in the age to come. Lord, we thank you for this encouraging and powerful story to, to not look at our circumstances or our fiery trial and, and believing you. And may you fill us today, Lord, with, with the hopeful confidence that you're able to save us. And even if you don't, you're faithful. Release, Lord, gifts of faith among us today that we could be those kind of people. And Lord, now as we prepare our hearts to, to give and to worship you, we pray that you'd receive these gifts for what they are, tokens that from our life simply and humbly say, we love you. In your name, amen.